the Rogue Cookers, Texas Embedded Correspondent. You're listening to the Barbecue Central Show. Start the game! Let's go! We'll do it live. Do it live! I can, I'll write it and we'll do it live! So to get that perfect barbecue, you use wood. Are you sure it's safe? Whatever. We put the lighter fluid on, strike your match, and... Should we call the fire department? That might be a good idea. Welcome to the really big Barbecue Central Show. This is the show where we talk about all things that are important to the world of barbecue and grilling. The show originating from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame City, Bomb City, USA, Cleveland, Ohio, the barbecue capital of the North Coast. I am your program host, Greg Griffey. Happy to have you aboard here on your Tuesday evening live fire fun and frivolity show if you'd like to get in contact with the show this evening or you would like to follow the show during off show hours here's how you do all that you can get in touch with the show by sending an email to greg at the bbq central show.com follow us on all the social media channels at bbq central show and be sure to subscribe to the show podcast feed on your favorite podcast platform anything else you want to find out about the show can be found at the main website the bbq central show.com and here's what's happening in case you get the newsletter coming up in about 12 minutes from now the second tuesday of a month and in the first spot the lead spot 14 minutes past that first hour of the second tuesday of every month it means we can be expecting a visit from our pal meathead from amazingribs.com we have a number of things to talk about In his opinion, the Barbecue Central show may or may not have an identity crisis or a name crisis. We'll talk about that. We'll also talk about grill brushes. We'll talk about a number of other topics during our course this evening. And then, after Meathead, 35 past the first hour, we'll be joined by also second Tuesday of the month regular guest here in the second hour, Robert Moss, robertfmoss.com. Tonight starts what will be for the balance of the year, so 11-month jaunt on specific topics that Robert and I have decided we would like to dig in on. I'd send him a bunch of different topics of things that I would like to talk about, discuss, or dig deeper in beginning of the year or as the year was turning, and I sent him the list, and he quickly said, well, this is something that we could easily cover during segments here over the course of the rest of the year. So I don't want to say we have the rest of the year mapped out with Robert Moss already. I'm sure there's going to be plenty of other things that pop up that we can get his thoughts on outside of what we are planning for the rest of the year. But tonight we start and we're going to be talking about the lesser known cuts in the history of barbecue. So if you've ever wondered outside of ribs 
and pork shoulder, whole hog, brisket. What have been some of the other standards in barbecue history? We'll learn about it all tonight during the Robert Moss segment, and that'll bring a close to the first hour. Then we'll move to the second hour. First timer of the show, she's the organizer of Smoke Slam, which is going head-to-head against Memphis in May, here in May, same weekend, same days. You know well about it because we talk about it here on this show quite often because it's just giving new and new and new information week after week. So we will be joined by first-timer to the show and another first-time guest here. Seems like every week over the course of the brand-new year, we've had at least one new guest to show. Melzi Wilson will be joining us. She's in Atlanta tonight, where she'll be joining us from. And we'll talk about her time in barbecue, how she got into it, how she got into organizing. She was well-connected with Memphis and May for probably every year up until this year, where when Carrie Bringle broke off and joined the steering committee on this new smoke slam, Melzi was soon tapped to take over organizational duties, which she's also doing now. So we'll talk about maybe where the fade of feelings happened during Memphis and May over the course of the last handful of years, why she might have grew a little bit disinterested, or perhaps a better question might even be why an upstart competition that seems to be so dead set against going against one of the stalwarts, one of the majors every year, why she would want to make that switch. So Melzi Wilson, 14 past, and if needed, 35 past the second hour. And that's how your show's here setting up this evening. Meathead Robert Moss in your usual first hour. Melzi Wilson, first-time guest, second hour. Don't forget, you can follow me socially, Instagram, X, TikTok, Snapchat. We say good evening to those of you watching tonight. Through one of our video streaming platform partners, you can go to facebook.com slash Show. Actually, I think that's probably wrong tonight because something happened in the streaming service, but sure that'll get worked out by next week. You can go to twitter.com slash Show, where I know it is happening. And of course, you can go to the most popular way to watch the show, youtube.com slash Show, And we have a YouTube poll question of the week that we're asking everybody. YouTubers and guests alike will be asked, Will you watch the UFL this spring since the NFL season is now officially over? 64% of you are saying no. I am firmly with 64%. When you get to my advanced age, you come to realize a few things. One being probably the most important. Time is fleeting, right? I mean, today... February 13th, what do we have? As I mentioned last week, the middle daughter, Madison Rempe, turns 21 today. Happy birthday to Maddie, of course. Probably out ripping it up in Kenton, Ohio right now. Who knows what's going on? Shots, beers, octobongs, ice luges. I don't know what happens in colleges these days, but I remember kind of what it was like for my 21st birthday. So we wish her safety and responsibility first and a good time second. But all to make the point that time is fleeting. I can't waste my time anymore watching nonsense. And the UFL, while it may be a platform for those that have been overlooked in the draft, those who have dropped out of the NFL and feel they deserve another shot, 
They're good enough to make a UFL roster in hopes that they rekindle a spark or they get a look from a scout or a coach on the NFL sideline to bump them back up to the big leagues again. Great. Good for you. Try your hardest. I'm not going to be party to it because I'm not going to watch substandard football when the NFL provides the elite of the elite. That's why I don't watch WNBA basketball. I watch NBA basketball. That's why, because I'm not a sexist, I watch college softball because it's better than the professional women's version. Same thing with women's college volleyball. I watch it over men's volleyball. Men's indoor volleyball, very tough to watch. Impressive for about five minutes and that's it. So I'm here to tell you, time's fleeting. If you're 29, I'm sorry, 31% of the folks that say they're going to watch UFL, good. Good for you. You're a true football fan. You're watching no matter what, and there's plenty of you out there. But my time is too valuable to watch on second-rate football. I'd be watching the Canadian Football League or some other nonsense that they're trotting out here now, trying to latch onto and ride the coattails of the NFL. Why not? So we'll check the stats over the course of the rest of the show here. Anxious to get Meathead's opinion. Who knows? Maybe Meathead won't give me his opinion or an answer like he didn't last week or last month. We'll see. Maybe he's being insufferable again. We'll see here shortly. We're going to start here tonight. I'm very excited to announce this, by the way. It's just happened. Barbecue Central Show exclusive news update. Greg Ripper reporting from the breaking news desk here in Cleveland, Ohio, the city that breaks the most live fire breaking news across the country. Nay, the globe. In what was the longest ongoing lawsuit ever in the history of live fire lawsuits? You know it, Traeger versus Green Mountain Grills in what feels like it's been dating back some 75 years at this point. Of course, I'm just kidding, but it's been years. As of February 8th, 2024, this case has been 100% officially closed and an agreement has been reached in amicable fashion by the two sides. Thank goodness. There will be no further litigation on this specific matter going forward between these two companies. I talked to top men in the industry. I worked my sources. And while I cannot get settlement detail, I can tell you that you don't need to ask about it anymore. You're not going to hear hide nor hair of this anymore. And there will be no suing by either side going forward anymore. Great news to all the other pellet manufacturers out there in the world that are making cookers. Because Green Mountain, uh, Green Mountain Grills took one right to the balls for all of you. I'm going to make a request that all the other pellet grill manufacturers send ten dollars or $50,000 to Green Mountain Grill as a service of thank you to what they did to everybody else. Allowed you to have time to make your work around so Traeger wouldn't go sue you. And everybody owes Green Mountain Grills a debt of gratitude as far as I'm concerned. By the way, Green Mountain Grills at the HPB Expo, which I am not at this year. Are you tired of settling for mediocre grilling experiences? Yes. It's time to step your game up and bring the ultimate flavor and cooker to the backyard barbecues. Pits and spits charcoal grills 
offering the highest quality live fire cooking experience you can get in the market today. Using either wood or charcoal, their solid fuel grills produce those classic flavors you're looking for when you have the time to fire up the grill, cook for family and friends. With a large adjustable fuel tray, you can raise and lower the fire to control and fine tune the heat. Their take on the very popular Santa Maria style grill that's also out there. Check them out online, pitsandspits.com slash BBQ Central. That's pitsandspits.com slash BBQ Central. And as you're checking out with that new charcoal grill that you have, you want to save 150 bucks on that? You know you do. Enter promo code Charcoal Central, all one word at checkout, Charcoal Central, and you can save $150 off any charcoal grill. Great. If you follow me on Instagram, I reposted one of those Pits and Spits charcoal grills on my story. You tell me, it's not the most sexy charcoal grill currently available on the market. It is a knockout. Pitsandspits.com slash BBQ Central. And don't forget, Pits and Spits, the double T on the Pits and the Spits. We're back with Meathead right after this. Stick around. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Barbecue Central Show. Broadcasting live from the Barbecue Central Show studios in Cleveland, Ohio. You're listening to the Barbecue Central Show. Once again, here's your host, Greg Rempe. Welcome back. This portion of the show being brought to you by cookingpellets.com, your number one source for quality wood pellets for all your pellet-driven cookers. You visit cookandpellets.com and review everything they have for sale to purchase. And then when you're ready to buy, sounds kind of productive. Go to amazon.com or walmart.com or lowes.com. Same great product. Hugely wonderful shipping rates, and we all love that. Good folks over at cookandpellets.com, Chris Becker and the gang. My first guest tonight needs no introduction, but I'll try anyway. He's created the most heavily trafficked barbecue and grilling website on the face of the earth, a best-selling author, a barbecue Hall of Famer, a Barbecue Central Show's guest Hall of Famer. Meathead is here. Meathead, before we get going here this evening, we have a YouTube poll question of the week that we're asking everybody, and we're wondering if we're getting Meathead tonight or insufferable Meathead tonight. But the question is this. Will you watch the UFL this spring since the NFL is now over, yes or no? You said you didn't want to watch second-rate football, but you watched the Browns and I watched the Bears. Come we on, already watched second-rate football. <laughs> the Browns were good this year, Meathead. You got me confused. <laughs> yeah, it was, it's been the other 21 years that we have had to suffer through NFL seasons. So, uh, well, so, we're both football fans. Yeah. And I love to watch football, but I probably won't watch right. the, 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 the minor league. 75% of us are in agreement. We're not going to be watching the minor league football as it mm-hmm. generates the spring under whatever umbrella it's going to be. Meathead, we were going back and forth. Uh, you have a 
alleged book that's going to be coming out here next year. And we were talking about how the show should be recognized in the book. Now, before we get after it, let me just say, I am humbled to be even mentioned and or included in the book. Of course. Thank you. But in talking about it, you said, well, you say it's not a podcast. Uh, I say, call it the Barbecue Central Show. You say, I have an identity issue potentially or an identity problem. Let's talk it out with the Centralites and see who's right and who's not. Well, I, I just didn't I don't have an opinion. Don't? I don't know what to call. I, no, I, I mean, I quote you in the book, Greg Rempe, host of the Barbecue Central Show blank. And now do I, I it's not a podcast because I think podcasts are typically just voice only sound only. But we have video. There's this weird vlog term out there. And I don't think anybody <laughs> knows what a vlog is. Um, and you said, just call it a show. But, I mean, a show could be on Broadway. A show could be a high school gym. So I just didn't know how to describe you. And you said, well, it sounds like I got an identity crisis. Okay. Here's what I think. So podcasting, like many things anymore, has finally evolved to where at least a certain percentage, maybe let's say the majority of folks, if you mention the term podcast to them, everyday ham and eggers would have an idea what you were talking about. Or it's a term that they've heard. Yeah, 10 years ago, mm -hmm. they still hadn't heard about it. And I was well into my sixth or seventh year at that point of, of doing podcast eight overall. Now I think we're to the point where podcast is something that is a buzzword that people know. But over the time... A podcast originally was audio only and recorded, and that was how the show started. But over time, platforms and audiences wanted more. They wanted to see a camera. They want video. So now a podcast can also include a show that has video like we have here that is recorded. The reason my show becomes quickly into a gray area because it continues to have the podcast feed, which has 21, 2200 different posts in it over the course of time that it's been out for. It also has a live component, which many shows don't have, which is why I dropped that Barbie central radio show. Cause it was never on radio anyway. So it, it does become a gray area for me specifically and anybody else that kind of does what I do with a live show, but you're also recording and then you also release into the podcast feed for people to consume at their leisure. Like most people do very small percentage of folks will watch the show as it's happening live. And that's why I love my live audience the most because they're carving time out of a Tuesday night to check us out live. And that's why I think in this instance, barbecue central show, is exactly what it is. Is it a podcast? Yes, but not only a podcast. Is it a show? But not only a show, there's also a podcast and it's got video componentry to it as well. So show is something that describes it best because there isn't a great descriptor otherwise because then we're pigeonholing it if we're calling it just a podcast or something other than that with a descriptor. So Barbecue Central well, Show it is. 
let's coin it. Let's coin a term. We'll call it a rempy. The Barbecue Central show rempy. Yes, it's a rempy. All right. And anybody else who does this is doing a rempy. That's right. And uh, we have to immediately trademark. I got to call my lady yeah. to make sure call that we lawyer. legalize that. And that way I can collect money off of that as well. All right. So now that we got that covered, I got to ask you before we talk about grill brush. Are you, are you watching the guy eating raw chicken on the Instagrams? Yeah, I haven't watched him in a while, but it, it just it, it, he's going to get sick eventually. I mean, um Consumer Reports a few years ago went out and bought 300 chicken breasts and tested them, and 90% um, of them contained pathogenic bacteria. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to get sick from every one of those. Yep. It has a lot to do with your individual immunity system and the load. This is what microbiologists call load. How many bacteria are in there? If there's one or two little bacteria in there, chances are you're not going to notice. You're not going to get sick. But if there's a lot of them in there, you can. Um, now, the, that this, this Consumer Reports research was 2014. The systems have gotten better, so there's less pathogenic contamination. But it's out there. And, mm. um, uh, you know, it's just, it's just silly. And f among other things, do you want to eat raw chicken? I mean, it's just slimy, greasy, un and and his videos are just really unattractive. I mean, they're 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 barf worthy. Let me get your potential expert opinion on this. Can you put yourself in a position where you ingest? He's on day twenty six, and he's just shy of four hundred thousand followers on Instagram, eating raw chicken every day until he gets a tummy ache. As I do more research on this guy. He's eaten raw meat for lengths at a time, raw eggs for lengths at a time, a lot of uncooked stuff, fish, blah, blah, blah. Can you train or can you eat so much raw chicken to the point where you make yourself immune? Yeah. Hmm. I, 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 the question is, is what level of immunity? And I don't think science knows. But there's a high likelihood that he has developed certain degree of immunity to i mean raw chicken is campylobacter and uh, salmonella the common bugs that are in them it is e coli and other things but those are the two it's possible that his system has created antibodies or uh, immunity if you will so that it doesn't affect him as much and and so he might he might make it. I wouldn't advise anybody else out there. I mean, first of all, why? It just doesn't. It's not appetizing. No one should be taking this as the government is hoodwinking us. You can eat raw chicken regularly, and it's safe, and you should do it without fear. I feel like maybe that's what he's posturing. I don't know if that's what his point is. Um, you know, look, so many people distrust our government. It has given us plenty of reason to distrust it, but it's also given us plenty of reason to trust it. Um, microbiologists, scientists, um, uh, they I think in general, they try very hard to give us useful data. And, um, uh, you know, here, bottom line, anything raw has a higher risk than anything cooked. 
cooking is, by the way, I think you know, but not everybody out there who's listening. I married a PhD microbiologist who was a food safety expert and worked for FDA for many years, which is where I get my minuscule expertise in the topic because I talked to her and I learned from her and I've seen her research. Um, and I, I think that um, she, she and others call it the kill step. Cooking is the kill step. Cooking kills bacteria. So, you know, if you read the, uh, the Center for Disease Control puts out a, something called the morbidity report. If you look at this thing, um, the vast majority of foodborne illnesses come from raw vegetables. I mean, you, you've heard these mm-hmm. recalls on um, lettuce and spinach and sprouts. Um, it is generally believed that raw sprouts are the most dangerous food in the grocery store yeah. uh, because the way you grow sprouts is you take these seeds, which are harvested from the field where birds and bunnies and pigs and others are rustling around. You harvest the seeds, you put them in a burlap bag, you ship them from Asia maybe or wherever to the United States. They sit in a warehouse. Then you soak them in warm water, yep. warm water. That's what makes them sprout. Warm water is exactly the same conditions that bacteria sprout in. So you're growing both. And so um, some of the worst cases of foodborne illness, there was one in Germany, I think 30 some people were killed from sprouts. Uh, Go tell your health food fans that sprouts are dangerous. Let's talk about grill brushes. Those can be dangerous. Every 4th of July, every Labor Day, you see the stories come out talking Mm -hmm. about so-and-so went to the emergency room because they have a grill brush bristle stuck in their throat or punctured their mm-hmm. lung or whatever. Thou. You have a grill brush you might have fallen in love with. Yeah. Well, let, let's just back up in case people are not up to speed on this. There is this. It's, it's a constant. It happens every year. Yep. You read about it. Wire bristle brushes, often the bristles come off. And they land on your grill grate and your grill grate may be dirty. You don't see it. And then it gets on a burger or a steak and somebody eats it and it lodges in their throat or their stomach. And it can be really bad. And not not every doctor recognizes it. They, there was a case that the New York Times wrote about recently where they, did, it, you know, took months before they finally figured out what it was. Um, it, it's dangerous. My experience with them is, is these grill brushes that are wrapped in metal. There's like a braid, a metal braid. They're pretty good. They don't come out that I, I mean, I I have every grill brush known to man. I I don't think they come out very, it's the ones that are in wood. Mm. The ones that are in metal and plastic seem to be anchored pretty solidly. But regardless, if you're using a bristle brush, you should, after you're done scraping and wiping, look at the grill carefully to make sure that there's no bristles left or possibly just wipe it with a paper towel. Um, some people use an onion. But I recently purchased um, something called Grill Rescue, um, which is a grill cleaning tool. And it is really cool. It really works. I really like it a lot. And I, I would write, I'd like to recommend it. It's a big plastic handle. And it's got a metal scraper on the end. So you can scrape. Ah, Greg's showing pictures. But it's got this pad inside surrounded by uh, that's not the pad um that's something else that's a a, a, 
it, it's got this um f- f- it's like a foam pad but it's wrapped in a really heavy duty cloth it's like the stuff they make fire hoses out of and it just doesn't catch on fire it doesn't burn what you do is you dunk it in water and i have a little one of those little um uh, uh loaf pans it's a uh uh, aluminum disposable loaf pan that holds about, you know, two cups of water. And I fill it up with water and I just keep it by the grill and I dunk this thing in the water for, you know, 30 seconds. It soaks up water and you run it over your grill grates. And if they're hot and that you should heat them up, it steams <laughs> and it, it's really effective at removing grease. Now it only gets the top side. So you either have to flip it over or you, there's a, another gadget that I like called Chargon. It's sort of a U-shape, and Chargon scrapes both the top and the bottom. And you don't want grease on your food. You don't want grease from the top of the grill, from the top of the grill grate, or the underside of the grill grate. Grill, gr- burning grease, smoking grease. A lot of people, they, you know, they get their gas grill cranked up, and they see all that smoke coming out, and, oh, boy, I'm a-smoking now. Um, <laughs> that's grease. You don't want that. You want your smoke from wood. So this, 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 this grill rescue pad um, really is effective. It m- almost instantly goes turns black, <laughs> but you can wash it out. You can put it in a bucket and wash it out. You can buy replacement pads, and I just bought two today. They're like 16 bucks a piece, so they're not cheap. Um, but um, I, I'm very impressed with it. They really do. I have stainless steel grates on, on my gas grill, and it gets them pretty darn clean. They can work on any grill. So if I have grill grates, the product, then they, it would work just as good, you think? They recently introduced a brush that has, like, fingers. I just saw it for the first time today. And the fingers, it's designed, there it is, you got it. It's designed for grill grate. Um, and there you go. Wow, it it goes into the valleys and over the river and through the woods. And uh, I haven't tried it yet. I just ordered one. and But it looks like it might work. Um, I think I think it's very clever. $56 for a grill brush seems yeah. like a lot, but maybe it's it's quality over quantity. Because you can buy well, right. you know $4 grill brushes all day long, but they might be leaving spokes on the top of the grill deck. I got a feeling that it won't be long before Amazon or some outfit in China is duplicating and ripping them off and driving the price down. And uh, they'll, they'll be forced to follow the price downward. <laughs> I noticed on their website today when I was poking around, they're getting into other products. So it looks like they're uh, starting to expand into other things. That, that black thing was a sort of a, a, a kitchen sponge type thing. Yeah. For, but in any case, sponge. it's called Grill Rescue. You can get it on Amazon or from their website, Grill Rescue. And it works. And it cleans the top sides of the grates pretty darn well. What do you think in our minute and 15 seconds left? Why all of a sudden, with all the information that we have on how to tell when your steak is done internally with thermometers, that there is a rash of articles coming out from really reputable news sources that are saying, ditch the thermometer or don't get the tech. All you need to do is do the finger to the thumb and now poke the meat of your thumb and that's what a medium rare or a medium steak. I can't believe that we're perpetuating this misinformation. I've seen it too. In fact, you sent me one. I I, I think this is just, this was a a young woman 
this is a technique that has been around for years and people are assigned to write about cooking on a grill, how to cook a steak. And somehow she stumbled into one of these ancient articles. I mean, look, my hand feels different than a young woman's hand yeah, or a big fat guy, um, his hand and a filet mignon feels different than a sirloin. So poking your hand, they show you how to clench your fists and fingers. Right. That's absolutely absurd. And anyone with half a brain would recognize this as absurd. But it's a, it's a myth. And the barbecue world, as you know, is full of myths. I've made it a mission of mine to bust as many of them as I can. This is one that keeps perpetuating. And uh, it'll likely be there long after you and I are gone. There was two articles in three days. There was the one I'd sent you, and then a day, two days later, there was a, another one that picked it up that was talking about the same stuff. Nonsense, uh, if you're asking me. As Diva Q says in her live demos when she does her big steak stack thing, she talks about the importance of a thermometer. She's like, don't do the, the hand poke test. Look at me. Every inch of my body is medium rare. So don't talk to me about <laughs> this, that, and the other thing. Get your thermometer, know where your temperatures are, and, and that's the bottom line because, like you said, everybody's different. So everybody's thumb and forefinger and pinky and middle finger aren't going to be feeling the same. Get the thermometer, of course, and then temperature we know is the only thing where you know if it's medium rare or if it's medium well or somewhere in between. And, and it's a safety issue also. Yes. I mean, we talked about the chicken. Uh, you really don't want to undercook chicken or ground beef, and uh, um, it's a safety thing. So, And there's so many good thermometers out there now. Um, we've given a platinum metal to a $20 instant read. Yeah. Um, uh, the, 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 the Thermopop, which is, you know, everybody's inexpensive favorite, is, I think, around 30 bucks. The Thermopin, which is near the top of the line, 100 bucks, all kinds. Yeah, get a Thermopop. Very inexpensive, very reliable. I don't know how many people know, but we have on AmazingRibs.com an electrical engineer who tests thermometers for us. He's got special equipment that measures, is it accurate, and how fast does it read? <laughs> and then he, tr he cooks with them and tries them. And we have over 200 thermometers, hands-on, detailed, accurate reviews. Um, and uh, we don't sell any, but, you, you know, we're linked to them. And uh, th there's actually some that are even less expensive than the Thermopop, although that's a really good choice. It's a very reputable company. Second Tuesday of the month, regular guest is right here. It's Meathead from AmazingRibs.com. If you have any questions or you would like to know more about this industry and topic that we hold so dear, head on over to AmazingRibs.com and check it out if you've never done that. Meathead, we will see you in March. See you. That's Meathead right there. I was not aware of Grill Rescue, but with a Kevlar pad ready to go, I'm I'm always looking for a great grill brush. I'm not afraid to spend a little money as far as that's concerned. Always safety. You don't want to cheap out on safety. You remember our pal Derek Riches had a big grassroots movement of trying to get bristle brushes taken off the market, period. That never came to fruition. But he really tried. I'm sure he would be happy with this grill rescue brush as well, like Meathead is. We have Robert Moss ready to go. 
Before we do that, we'll talk to you about Primo Grills. By the way, they are at the HPB Expo exhibiting right now. Probably not right now, but tomorrow for sure, all day during the day. What do we love about ceramic cookers? We love that they're fuel efficient. We love that they can achieve low and slow temperatures for traditional barbecue meat. We love that they can get really hot for high temperature grilling of steaks and other thin cuts like I did the other night. What's missing in the everyday ceramic grill lineup? The real ability to do true two-zone cooking. Two-zone cooking is very important to both professional and backyard cooks alike. It's the best way to manage a fire and cook with confidence. However, getting a two-zone fire and a round ceramic cooker is not very realistic. Why? Because it's round. Enter Primo Grill and the game-changing oval design. The shape gives you the ability to execute that two-zone setup that you desire. It also gives you the other ceramic grill benefits as well. When you break it down, there's 60 different ways to configure the Primo cooker and cook on it. So you're only limited by your culinary imagination. If you are in and around Nashville, if you want to try your hand at walking through the HPB Expo out there in Nashville, Primo is there. They'll be at the Empire Comfort booth. It's huge because they do a lot of other stuff besides grills, plus they own Broil Master Gas Grill. Check them out. See if you can configure it 60 different ways right there in the booth site. As for Nick Bauer, I'm sure Nick's there. Pressing the flesh, getting new dealers and all that fun stuff. See what new accessories they might be limiting out to all the different cookers and sizes. By the way, only sold through dealers, primogrill.com to find a dealer near you. Then visit the dealer in person, check out the oval that best fits your needs, and then buy it. You'll be happy you did primogrill.com that's primogrill.com and again exhibiting at the HPB Expo right now in Nashville we're back with Robert Moss right after this stick around be right back you're listening to the Barbecue Central Show Stern, Jim Rome, Dan Patrick, and Greg Rampey. The Mountain Rushmore of talk show entertainment. Now, let's get back to the Barbecue Central Show. And we thank Meathead for joining us last segment. AmazingRibs.com, his website. This portion of the show being brought to you by Fireboard, who I also believe is exhibiting at HPB Expo in Nashville. You can monitor up to six different temperatures simultaneously. You can connect to Wi-Fi for cloud-based monitoring. You can connect via Bluetooth if you prefer. If you want to add a little automatic temperature control device fan to it, you can get the drive, connect it right to the module. Alexa, the Google Assistant are also integrated with Fireboard. So find out more by visiting fireboard.com or call 816-945-2232 for your questions. My next guest, the contributing editor, barbecue editor for Southern Living Magazine. He is an accomplished author, restaurant critic, podcast host, and a 2023 Barbecue Central Show's guest hall of fame inductee. We welcome back our pal Robert Moss. We're asking everybody for a YouTube poll question of the week, Robert, that now that the NFL season is officially over this past Sunday with a Chiefs pulling down another world title. Will you be watching the UFL in spring to supplement your potential football loss? 
Uh, hard no. Mm. Hard no. All right. So I said yeah. I barely watched NFL this year. So uh, no. Are I you uh, are you under a protest or you just had too much other no, things? No, I'm, I'm from the South. We we like college football. We don't have a lot of pro team loyalty down here. So I hmm. barely watched the pro the the NFL as it is. And the last thing I need is yet another football league out there. Last month, towards the end of the conversation, we were talking about mustard-based sauces, and I specifically called out a brand, Reverend Marvin's uh, Mustard-Based Barbecue Sauce. Well, back when it was out selling, there was the original, there was also a spicy version, and I wanted to follow back up with you and see if you had any other further thoughts. Well, I just wanted to look into it a little bit and because I had not heard of it, but um, it wasn't too hard to turn up. Yeah, there definitely was a Reverend Marvin's mustard sauce. Um, interesting story about back in the 1980s, a guy named uh, uh, Marvin Lynch, who was actually a, a dean of admissions at Francis Marion University. And if you're not from South Carolina, you probably won't know Francis Marion University, but it's up in the swamps around uh, Florence, South Carolina. And he uh, he was a uh, the dean of admissions, but also a lay preacher. So he was definitely a, a reverend and cooked at a lot of church, church uh, barbecues and, and everything else and started bottling his sauce. And it was a, I think, a big product in sort of the, the middle part of South Carolina. But I, I, I think what happened is at some point, I, I, uh, the original Reverend Martin passed away, but I think his son was selling it probably at the time that you, that you encountered it, but definitely a, um, a South Carolina style mustard sauce. What I think was interesting from the uh, articles about it is it's a mustard sauce, but one of the ingredients mentioned is ketchup. Mm. And there is a sort of a not too well known fifth sauce in South Carolina, which you find in certain parts of the middle part of the state that is a blend of mustard and ketchup. So it's a little bit of the red sauce, a little bit of the yellow sauce. It's this like rusty orange color. If you've, uh, people who've been to South Carolina have been to the Duke's Barbecue Restaurants uh, down here, which is a family that runs a bunch of barbecue restaurants. They call it rust gravy, but it's this sort of like orange mm. sauce that blends mustard and ketchup both. And it sounds like uh, the, the Reverend uh, Marvin Lynch's sauce was in, in that category. Before we get going on the topic here this evening, I want to preface our conversation and say if you're somebody that is a lover of barbecue history, if you love having reference material of live fire, then you want to make sure if you don't already have a copy, you pick up a copy of Robert Moss's book, Barbecue, the History of an American Institution, originally published, if you can believe it, Robert, I don't know if you're aware of this, in 2010. <laughs> so uh, 14 yeah, I was years aware of ago. That. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> an expanded edition four years ago, and I know a lot of the discussion is probably going to be based on that. How does that, you ever thought about doing yet a, another revision of that book, or is that something you could just do yeah, ongoing so I did every five one, years? The original one was in, in, in 2010. After I had submitted the manuscript to the press, Aaron Franklin opened his little barbecue trailer on the side of the interstate on I-35 in, 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 uh, in Austin, and the barbecue scene just changed dramatically over the next 10 years. So mm -hmm. it was, you know, I had to write another book to fill in the gaps that I'd missed, but also to tack 10 years on. I have a feeling about 2030 will be time for another one. So I think there'll be a mm -hmm. a, a third edition coming out at some point, but I'm going to give myself at least, you know, another six, seven years to, to get that one written. The topic tonight is exploring 
the lesser known meats and regional variations in Southern barbecue throughout history. For the folks that are coming into this, especially over the last, let's say, two, three, four years, really in the pandemic ages where you know, folks maybe didn't even have an interest in learning how to do any type of live fire cooking, but now they're forced to be at home for God knows who long or how long. They bought multiple cookers, multiple different styles. They're on YouTube trying to figure out how to use them, how to cook them properly. But they don't have the breadth of knowledge and the, the wealth of information of the history of all of this. And that's when we bring in the expert, Robert Moss, to talk about it. So everybody knows ribs and pork shoulder, whole hog, brisket, sausage, whatever. But as you look back through the history of barbecue, have there been other cuts of meat, beef, whatever, that were the briskets and the pork ribs of the day back then? And that here they were in all their majesty and somehow they've just gone by the wayside. Um, yeah, the, the short answer is yes. And then the long answer is where I'm going to like dig into the yeah. all the different words that you used. So um, you, you said regional styles of, of barbecue and you, you mentioned cuts of meat. And I think it helps to go back to the beginning. Well, not the very beginning, but we'll go back to the 19th century before there are restaurants when barbecue was this outdoor cooking tradition. And the amazing thing really is in the 19th century, barbecues, whether in your Virginia, you're in Ohio, you're in Texas, they're very similar in, in, in nature. Um, and we say cuts of meat, there really weren't cuts of meat because in the 19th mm. century, it was a whole animal cooking tradition. So um, you might have, a, if you're cooking a cow, that might be cut into like quarters. So you might have a quartered cow, but by and large, everything else was cooked whole. Yeah. And Definitely the 19th century, beef, pigs, sheep, the top three barbecue meats, um, everything but the, the, but the beef cooked whole. The beef would be split in half or, or cut into quarters, cooked literally in a trench in the ground over coals. Um, and, so, and it was the same all, all over the place. So you really have this, this regional uh, a variation in meat. Um, that said, why didn't you have the regional variation in meat? Well, because... At the time, uh, these events were not, it wasn't a commercial enterprise. It wasn't a restaurant. So these were community events that were being staged for big celebrations, 4th of July, um, you, know, you know, things like that, a, big, a lot of political bar barbecues. And the meat that was cooked was just donated by local farmers. So whatever they had on hand that they were willing to donate, they would, you know, no refrigeration. They would take it to the to the, wherever the barbecue is going to be. They would slaughter it right there and butcher it right there and uh, at, at the pit and put it over the coals. And so you might see in Georgia, you would see, you know, pigs, sheep, cows, goats, venison, you know, just about everything, regardless of, of where you were. And, and by and large, it was very large cuts. And it wasn't until the 20th century that that began to change and, and you begin to get more regional variation. And then as you get refrigeration in a meat industry, um, then you started to see more specialization in, in you know, smaller cuts of meats on the pit. When you talk about cooking in the trenches, they, you know, burn down coals or whatever, something along these lines. Or, I mean, was there charcoal back then that was in regular use that you know of? Oh, no, no. It oh, was, yeah. I mean, the uh, a barbecue was, there was t it was almost always held in a grove of trees. So in the woods, because you think about it, no air conditioning. These tended to be in the summer. If you're in July, particularly in the south, uh, but also in the Midwest, you, you, you need shade. 
And so, so there are these sort of regular barbecue groves, which are these little stands of trees, which, you know, were cleared out between them, but they would actually go dig pits. You can find all these images of them uh, down in, you know, out in these woods. And um, they would chop down trees from right there around it and bring them to the, uh, the pits, fill them up and, uh, you know, set them on fire and burn the wood down the coals and then spread them out and cook over them. So then, no, charcoal was a, a phenomenon of the 20th century. There's, we'll probably get to that in a later episode um, that was very much tied to in industrialism and everything else. Back then, it was all wood, you know, chopped down, and you know, not the day of, because you have to cure it, but, you know, they would bring firewood in from wherever they, they held their firewood. Are the quarter cows or the whole hogs, whatever, laid directly on to the coals at that point? In the trenches, or they laid over the trench for at now, least a little bit of space. You, 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 the, the trench would be about a foot and a half, two feet deep, coals in the bottom, and then there would be either green, like uh, cardwood sticks, you know, you know, green, uh, green rods or iron uh, laid across them, and then the meat would be laid across uh, across the, the the rods. And you can actually see that in lots of lots of the pictures and paintings is. You know, it's sort of like a pit with with stakes across it that the meat would be held up about you know eighteen inches to two feet above the the actual coals. So most of these meats stayed around, except one of them seems to have faded away. Uh, now, not all the way away, but out of the four that you mentioned, lamb seems to be the one that has gone more or less by the wayside to a certain degree. Why do you think that is? Um. So I've actually dug into this a lot, and there's sort of two stages to it. Um, first, you have the transition of barbecue from the outdoor tradition, free large community events, occasional Fourth of July, you know, campaign barbecue, what what have you, to the development of first barbecue stands and then commercial barbecue restaurants. They sort of evolved in the early 20th century. Um, in the process, you, your meats become a little more standardized. But before World War II, whether you're in Georgia, you're in Texas, you're in Kentucky, you're in Ohio even, um, if you see the, the typical menu from a barbecue restaurant, it's pork and lamb first, mm -hmm. and they may have a couple other things on there, but lamb was always on, on the restaurant menu. Um, and then after World War II, that began to fade and fade and fade. So lamb was really, a lot of times the very first menu item listed on the menu before the order two in, a, in a, one of the early barbecue joints um lots of like if you think of any classic barbecue joint that's been around b before world war ii um they probably were serving lamb uh like fresh air in in, in georgia uh in, uh in jackson georgia or um arthur bryant's in kansas city all of them serve lamb at, <laughs> at some point back uh, back in the in the early days uh, lamb in general just disappeared from the American dining scene. Uh, I, I did some research into it at some point. Back in the 20s and 30s, Americans consumed somewhere between six and eight pounds of lamb per person. And then that went steadily downhill uh, you know, per, per person per year. Uh, and that went steadily downhill after World War II. If you read, um, if you go Google that and say, you know, what happened to lamb, yeah. you'll see a lot of stories that GIs went off to World War II and they had these terrible rations that were mutton, you know, these mutton rations that they got overseas. And they came back home and they said, I never want to eat lamb again or mutton again and sheep and, and, and lamb. And by the way, the only difference between mutton and sheep or mutton and lamb, they're both sheep. A lamb is sheep that's a year or less, mutton is a year or older. Hmm. 
But the story is that they came back from you know overseas and said, I never want to eat lamb again or mutton again. And that was the end of, of mutton. Um, if you actually look at the numbers, uh, mutton and lamb sales started to decline in the 20s and went steadily down or through World War II, steadily downward through the 1950s. Mm-hmm. And it really had nothing to do. You would expect it to drop off right after World War II, but it just sort of goes steadily down. Uh, it has more to do with agriculture and um, the price of, of lamb and mutton and the fact that uh, wool production was always very closely tied to lamb and, and mutton prices. So when uh, the price of wool was high, lots of farmers would raise a bunch of lambs because they were growing big flocks of sheep to produce wool. And then guess what? In the fall, when they cheered them, their lamb would be on sale. Yeah, it'd be really, really cheap. And the next year, there wouldn't be so much lamb because the wool prices were higher. So it fluctuated a lot. And then after World War II, it was very expensive to raise. And you sort of had to choose as a rancher as things got bigger and bigger. Do I want to grow cows or do I want to grow sheep? And by and large, most ranchers went with cattle. Uh, per head, it was cheaper. They made more money off of them. And sheep has never recovered. Uh, I think the last I checked, uh, we're eating about 1.3 pounds of lamb per person per year, yeah. which is down like eightfold over you know, before World War II. When you found it in the barbecue restaurants, was it like what a whole hog would be where it's it's everything kind of chopped together? You get it as a sandwich? Is it mostly legs? Is it the rack? What is it? Well, you can still get it today if you go to Owensboro, Kentucky and places like that yeah. uh, where they still serve mutton. Um, my best I understand, um, you have to look careful. It's sort of funny. Like if you go to Keene's Chop House in Manhattan, which is one of my favorite steakhouses, they have a mutton chop, which is sort of like the signature thing for, for their restaurant. They will admit it's actually not mutton, it's lamb. You, they can't get good mutton in, in Manhattan. So they they it's a lamb chop, but it's a very thick, big lamb chop. Delicious, I would still recommend it. But I think Owensboro actually does import mutton that's about two years old. So it's 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 sheep's a little bit old. It is mutton shoulder. Yeah, you know, so it's cooked very much like a pork shoulder would be, slow cooked and then sort of chopped, sliced, however you want to do it. Uh, there's a few places in Western Kentucky where you can get chipped mutton, which is where they take the mutton and chop it in very, very fine bits and mix it with this savory sauce, put it on rye bread of all things. Um, you know, and it's absolutely delicious. Rye bread with pickles and onions. It's one of the, the, the best barbecue dishes that I've ever had, <laughs> but it's very hard to find. It's only in a, in a few locations. I keep hoping that lamb and barbecue will make a comeback, but, um, I've not seen any evidence of it so far. If you go present day, if I go to BJ's Wholesale Club or a Sam's Club, look for a rack of lamb, and then I look at the price of a steak, rack of lamb's pretty friggin' expensive. It's delicious. But for the amount I'm going to spend on that steak and the amount I'm going to get versus the, I mean, a rack of lamb is pound and a half is a pretty big rack of lamb. Usually it's like one and a quarter pounds or so, and it's 30, 32 bucks for the rack of lamb. I mean, cost per pound and yield, it's not nearly as attractive. It's delicious. And I'm a convert and I love it. And I have been for the last five or six years and I will opt to buy it on purpose. But I think the general consuming public might want to try it. And then they see the price. That's strike number one. And then if they're at all squeamish, they take it out of the cryovac and you have that initial lamb smell hit and that might there turn you off a, too. Absolutely. There is a definite 
gamey smell. It's hard to describe until you actually smell it. And but if you eat lamb, there is that sort of very lamby smell. A friend of mine says you can taste the wool. You know, it tastes like eating <laughs> eating wool. It's it's uh, I love it. I've I've grown to love it. But I will agree. And this is what happened after World War Two is as uh, farmers increasingly because it used to be you could get sheep anywhere the sheep were grown mm. raised all over the country so if you're in south carolina your barbecue joint 1940s you want to sell uh lamb or mutton there, there's a sheep farmer down the road who has sheep probably alongside his you know pigs and his, his cows and everything else but as agriculture became more specialized increasingly you either were growing cows or you're growing lamb as more and more people were growing cows and not not sheep and uh, it became more expensive. And there was this definite phenomenon in the 50s and 60s where lamb consumption almost disappeared in all the country except for the big urban centers like mm-hmm. Boston, New York, uh, San Francisco, Los Angeles, where it was sort of this like premier premium meat. And I think it's kept that way ever since. So it used to not be such a huge price differential between lamb and beef and pork. It was sort of, in fact, lamb, because it varied so much based upon the wool market, some years it'd be very, very cheap. So you might eat a lot of lamb because it was cheap, but that's not the case anymore. And, and you're absolutely right. If you want to go buy a rack of lamb, you, they're per pound, very expensive. And yeah. they're about this big, yeah. you know, they're, very, they're not, they're not very big. So you're not, you're not getting this, this massive tomahawk. There's no such thing as a tomahawk lamb steak. Um, <laughs> it's usually a, t- a thing about the size of a, you know, a hockey puck at, at best, usually smaller than that. But I think that's more dynamic of the market and how it's evolved than not anything, you know, fundamental about, about lamb and sheep. But um, if you can get a good lamb shoulder and, and barbecue it, uh, it, it is a, a fantastic thing. Always delivering the best information. It's Robert Moss, robertfmoss.com, his website. Robert, appreciate the look back here and looking forward to tackling those subjects through the rest of the year. We'll look for you in March. Sounds great. Thanks, Greg. It's Robert Moss right there. All right, so I made sure that we had the clock right as we're jumping out here. Maybe we went a little long with Meathead, but uh, Robert Moss delivering some great information there on the lesser-known cuts in the history of barbecue. And who knew lamb was so popular and then all of a sudden did a nosedive there um, at the end. So if you've never had it, As Sam the Cooking Guy once said last week, I'm not very adventurous. I got over the lamb part. You know, suck it up a couple different times. I know 30 bucks for a rack of lamb is a little tough. It's delicious if you cook it right. Medium rare, top. All right, we are pointing to the second hour. You stick around, and we'll be right back. You're listening and watching the Barbecue Central show right here on the Barbecue Central Network. 